0: During my days as an army chaplain, my soldiers called me Padre, and they would ask me all kinds of questions about God, relationships, the church, the Bible, spirituality, just everyday life. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take your questions and answer them with a story. Some of these stories are pretty intense, almost like a hardcore hagiography, if you will. Hagiography is the writing we find about the lives of the hagias, the saints, and we'll talk about how we read this kind of writing as we go along. Here's the question. Dear Padre, I read, a lot of, I read a lot about relics in the Middle Ages, but it doesn't seem like I hear about them very much nowadays. Did the relics lose their power or something, or were they always a joke? And this is from Dave. So thank you for your question, Dave. I'm going to answer your question about relics with the life of St. Cuthbert. That's right, Cuthbert. Cuthbert, who eventually became a very amazing saint in the church that existed in England prior to the English Reformation, old Cuthbert, he was born in 635, somewhere around there, and he died in 687, on the 20th of March, today, the day I'm recording this episode. Uh, He was born in a time really before the Norman conquest, so England at the time and Great Britain, or that whole island there was a very uh, divided place. There were numerous kingdoms and kings, all vying for supremacy one with another. And Cuthbert certainly lived right in the middle of that. He grows up as a very, uh, very uh, you know, person of uh, modest means, if you will. He is a shepherd at an early age, and while he's a shepherd, there's a story of how he's out at night, and his. Chums are giving him a hard time for staying up and he stays up really late. And as when everyone else has gone to sleep, he's looking at the stars and he sees, he sees Saint Aidan, who's a bishop, Bishop Aidan ascend to heaven. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but this is a, one of those stories about his early life that marks him as a saint. Uh, There's another story about how he is really gifted at athletics. And most of this comes to us from the Venerable Bede. The Venerable Bede is writing hundreds of years later, and yet the Venerable Bede is using sources that he is telling us about. The Venerable Bede will write uh, that he got this story from so-and-so, and and he got this other story from so-and-so. And And many people credit the Venerable Bede with inventing the footnotes. So if you ever had to type out footnotes on a typewriter or computer, or even use the automatic footnote features on Microsoft Word, you know how difficult footnotes are and how useful they are for future readers. They're sort of the trail of crumbs that attaches your scholarly work to the greater world of scholarship. And since there's no footnotes on a podcast, I'm thankful. But feel free to check up on any of these facts I give you. Like uh, those who read The Venerable Bede, I certainly can get some things wrong, like he did, and I would love to hear your corrections that I can perhaps rebroadcast, and you'll get credit for that. Extra credit, in fact, if you can point out some of my historical or even theological errors, although those may be harder to prove. Well, here we go with Cuthbert. Uh, he's a gifted uh, child. He's gifted at athletics. He's hes known to be very strong and, and uh, and athletic as a very young child and he is obsessed with sports and games he's playing sports and games all the time and there's a story that he's so good at all the sports he bests everyone he's better than everyone that he plays with his children all the children but one day as he and his chums are contor- it, this is what the account says venerable bead tells us that he is they're all contorting their bodies in very uh uh, unhuman ways it says or in some very uh distorted way uh perhaps some sort of gymnastics I don't know and they're all competing this is a game who can um sort of uh do the mo- the most wild acrobatics perhaps or something maybe this is yoga I don't know if they had it back then and in, in this part of great of of the uh of the land there of, of britain but he's doing this and this little child comes up to him little child comes up to him and starts, and this is like a very small child, maybe around the age of three, and starts spouting off this prophecy that that, uh, young Cuthbert needs to leave the pursuits of athletics and leave this life of games and follow the path in the church towards the life of Jesus and become a person of learning and letters And this prophecy from this out of the mouths of babes, it says, uh, out of the mouths of these little children, this prophecy comes and Cuthbert is arrested by this. He takes it very seriously and he then feels called to to go to the monastery. But um, he he has this vision, like I mentioned before, about St. Aidan. Now, Aidan is a very popular boy's name today in America. You'll see it in many a preschool and elementary school and maybe even high school at this point. Of time. It's an extremely popular name about 10 years ago. I think I need to check that on socialsecurity.com. But the name Cuthbert has not been so great. Uh, although, in the lives of the saints, Saint Cuthbert certainly uh, is probably the more famous of the two. Although, of course, Saint Aidan is the one that he sees carried into heaven. Uh, it seems uh, that somewhere in his teen years, Cuthbert is called up to military service. Uh, they're the kingdom of Mercia, uh, King Penda of Mercia, who seems to be the villain in the, in Venerable Bede's history of the English people. Uh, Bede is a, uh, a monk, again, inventor of the footnote, and also, uh, the first person to be called the Venerable Bede. Um, so whenever you see a Dean in the Episcopal church, they're often titled the Venerable Reverend so-and-so, uh, that comes from, from the venerable Beat, whose work is readily available online or or in paperback, from Penguin, and it's really an exciting read um, once you sort of sort through who killed who, and you you re- learn some really amazing things about this time in England, this time before the French invade, the time before it's really even England, and by any stretch of the imagination, there is this this very strong identity that comes from the different kingdoms, and the kingdom of Mercia. And King Penda is there, and they're fighting against Northumbria and a couple of other places. And Cuthbert would have been called to service just as every man, able-bodied man that was not in the church, or disabled, uh, would be called to military service. And we don't know a lot about his time in the military. He doesn't really ever talk about it, as far as I can tell, from what I've read. He 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 doesn't really deal with it much. Although there's this detail that sticks out to me in the Venerable Bede's writing. It says when. Cuthbert finally picks the monastery that he will go and study at. He finally goes to give his life to God. He shows up at the door of the monastery, the gate there, uh, with a spear, and the Venerable Bede calls it a traveling spear. Now, I, I don't know much about travel in the seventh century, but uh, you certainly needed spears to travel, weapons in case that someone would attack you on the road, but. It seems like he's coming almost from the battlefield to the monastery. And I find that to be extremely compelling, just as many of my the, my vet, fellow veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts recently, and many from the Vietnam era and the eras in between, even World War II and other times of great military conflict. There's been a call to this life of prayer and contemplation after the violence of war, the calling to be a soldier was certainly something that was valued in medieval society, but the calling to be a monk, a calling to be set apart, a calling to be a nun, set apart for God was was just as valuable in the society in many ways, although it, it often would not earn a person very much respect. Um, there, there is a scene, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but Cuthbert enters a monastery, and the description of him by Bede is that he is more intense than any of his fellows. He gives himself to work. He works hard. There's manual labor there at the monastery that he must do, and he's given to fasting. Fasting was kind of the way you you proved yourself as a monk. It was um, this life of austerity, not only fasting from relationships with women or families or, or the outside world or with money. But fasting from food and alcohol, he fasts from alcohol his whole life. He is an ascetic. He is someone who is like a like a endurance athlete for the kingdom of God. You'll see this in the life of Cuthbert and many other medieval saints. They were the the medieval equivalent of our endurance athletes, the Dean Karnazes of the world, and others who uh, trek across Antarctica and and go to the Arctic and do these long runs across Death Valley and the Sahara Desert and. Uh, the, well, the whole world looks at them like they're crazy. And they tell you in a very soft spoken voice, well, that's what I needed to do. And uh, they, their understanding of endurance athletes, extreme endurance athletes, ex- understanding of their own uh, calling to do this is very mysterious to outsiders, to people that don't run more than uh, a marathon or a 5K. It's really hard to get in their head why they would do such a thing. And Cuthbert is no different than that. Uh, He gives his life to the monastery, and the monks were very poorly treated by many of the people in medieval society. We often think of them as being extremely well-respected, but they were really weird. They were the the weirdos of the medieval world in many ways, and there's a story that illustrates that. When uh, Cuthbert is uh, just about is recently joined the monastery. A group of monks are transporting timber for a building, and the, there's bad weather or some sort of current, and the boards start falling off the boat, and there's a calamity, and and the uh, the people are lining up on the shore to witness their calamity, and the the people, just the normal villagers are there, and Cuthbert's there in the crowd. And Cuthbert starts to pray for the the monks who are seem to be in great distress. There's really nothing anyone can do to help them as they seem to be sinking and floundering and maybe to hit the rocks and the the townspeople start laughing and jeering at these monks they, they had, did not hold them in very high respect and Cuthbert scolds them and implores them to pray to God for their deliverance but uh, I was struck by that story because I always pictured uh the medieval society revering the monks, but in fact they were extremely uh they were extremely persecuted in many places because they were so different. They refused to to follow the broad road that everyone else seemed to be on. They were set apart in that way. And medieval society was a society full of violence, full of retribution, full of heavy-handed uh justice, if you can call it that. It was not an easy place to be a a person of peace. And so these monks were like the superheroes and the endurance athletes. There's one story from later in his life where Cuthbert uh, goes out at night. There's all these stories about him going out at night, very much like Jesus who disappears at night. And, and one day a monk follows him because he's, I guess, intrigued where Cuthbert would be going at night. Is he going to visit a woman? Is he going for some uh, other purpose, and he follows him out of the monastery, and he goes down to the coast, to the water, and immerses himself in the water in the night, in the cold water of the sea, and stays there all night, singing psalms out loud, and praying out loud in neck deep in water, and then in the morning, as the sun starts to come up, he gets up and goes back and slips back into the monastery for the morning prayers. And Cuthbert sees him as he's about to enter the monastery. He sees that he's been watching him, and he threatens this other monk and says, do not tell anyone about this. Do not tell anyone about this until I'm dead. Cuthbert warned him. So these stories were, and of course, the monk told everybody after he died. But these stories that that cast Cuthbert to be very much like Jesus, there's many stories of his miracles that are basically the miracles of Jesus in a medieval context. Which tells me something not so much about his, the historical accuracy of all these wonder works that he does, these, these wonder worker workings that he does, but about how people knew his love, his love for Jesus and his love for people. And I think miracle stories, and this is where hagiography gets really interesting, miracle stories uh, are stories of personal transformation when people make contact with a holy person, someone who is completely devoted to Christ. And you can see how some of those stories might grow into the miraculous just because there's no way to explain how your life was changed. I have stories about people in my life that I was just around or just had a conversation with. That if I were to tell you those stories about how those conversations changed my life, how those encounters, you might look at me and say, Well, I don't see how that story is very significant, or I don't see how. Just talking to someone or listening to them or hearing a sermon or something or a talk or reading a book could change your life so profoundly. So the miracle stories perhaps are a way of explaining uh, some of the, mirac- the miraculous transformation that people experience. I, I'm not saying the miracles didn't happen. I'm just saying that his life was so Christ-like that people could feel it and there, and miracles happened in a lot of different ways. Uh Saint Cuthbert lived uh until you know he, he lived through this tumultuous time of political turmoil uh, of of invasions and certainly uh, other events that happen that we don't even know about uh but eventually he's buried and uh eleven years later they dig up his body and his body is perfectly preserved bede tells us uh, it's perfectly preserved and it it smells really good. Now this is um, you know, where this incorruptibility of the body is a big theme for, the, for medieval saints. And uh, I don't know what you'll make of that. You know, I think that um, it was their transcendence of the earthiness of the body was something that, that a lot of people still struggle with, uh, our relationship to their bodies. And so these saints often had stories like this. But what happens with their bodies is they become relics, now, uh, the bodies become relics, and so valuable are these relics that when the Vikings invade in eight seventy five um, the monks flee from the abbey of Lindisfarne, where Cuthbert is buried, and they take his, the body with him with them. They take his relics, his bones, and his bones sort of travel around uh until they are finally interred in Durham Cathedral. And then William the Conqueror sweeps through in 1069 after his Norman conquest, and they take his body out again, and they put it in another place. And you see this, his body being transferred from place to place. The Normans, when they conquered, they were uh, descendants of Vikings who lived in France, and they had superior technology to the English. When they conquered England in 1066, and William the Conqueror became the king of England and Normandy, they... the he. William brought in and replaced most of the bishops and a lot of the priests. And they came to these cathedrals and they found the relics to St. Cuthbert. And they said, who is this bumpkin saint? They had never heard of him in Normandy. He was not on the official Roman list. Uh, He was a huge saint for the English people, but he was a nobody to them. And so they tried to get rid of his bones, and some other monks hid the bones, and his relics sort of lived on as symbols of their identity of this community. Uh, And eventually, um, his his relics were finally, uh, you know, moved again and again and again. And this is the the difficulty of uh, St. Cuthbert today, to find out where he is. But in those days, you can see the controversy surrounding him, even with the Normans, And I think it's really easy as Christians to go to other places in the world and look at people's customs and traditions. Even we are to go to a church down the street and look at their customs and traditions and say, these people are crazy, or they're so lame, or they're so dumb, or to to look at uh, people the way the Normans looked at the folks who were still enamored and following the example of St. Cuthbert. It's easy to look down on people that don't seem to have as much sophistication as we do. The Anglo-Saxon England English people were speaking a language that sounded rather Germanic and had a lot of four-letter words in it, and the Normans were speaking French that had very high falutin words. Uh, whereas the English people, uh, it, it, you know, we could go on the difference in the four-letter words the English spoke uh, versus the more uh, take the word shit for instance that uh, is a good anglo-saxon word the french norman french word is excrement you know a lot more flowery and uh, sounds a lot better Uh, so that split still exists in our language today words that are not allowed to be spoken on the radio thank we thankfully we can say them here in the podcast when we start to talk about the anglo-saxons and the normans so Uh, We think about St. Cuthbert's life and how the power of his relics and the miracles that these relics brought. There's a story, of course, after he dies that someone uh, is buried next to him and comes back to life. Another monk is buried next to him and comes back to life. This idea that the bodies of the saints were sacred. This is an ancient Christian tradition. This isn't some kind of medieval uh, tomfoolery. What it is is a recognition that the martyrs of the early Christian era and there's even examples in the old testament of this but in the early christian era the martyrs uh bones were sacred they were the last thing they had of their loved ones and and they they would always celebrate the communion service the holy eucharist on the grave of the martyr in the catacombs right on the coffin or right on the bone box that this person was in and that that symbol became extremely powerful in the christian imagination that The saints are under the altar, if you will. You see that in the book of Revelation, a direct quote from that. And you see how uh, many relics found their way into Christian altars down through the years as people built churches. Many altars in Christian churches around the world, especially Catholic churches, will have a relic of the saint in them, a piece of bone or hair or something like that, which sounds a little funky when you think of someone so old. But I do this. I have a little bit of hair from my three-year-old son. And And I have a lot of pictures of my children. And if you've got pictures of your children, you're not that different from these medieval people who didn't have pictures of the saints. They didn't have pictures the way you and I have pictures and photographs, but they had relics and relics were the pictures. They were the windows through which they could see the saint up close, that the saint who represented Jesus, who was like Jesus, could come and touch them and come and give them God's love in that way. And so I'm getting a little more comfortable with relics, maybe not to the level that uh maybe not to the level that we saw them used in the late medieval period that Martin Luther and the English reformers rail against, but perhaps in this other way, the family photographs of your kids, the the memories of ancestors who have gone on before us and how wonderful they were to us, that great grandparent that seemed to love us so much and show so much joy when they saw us. Uh that's the that's the sort of the modern secular relics that we carry with us, the mementos of our past. And the the mementos that seem to count in the kingdom of God are these other mementos of the saints, which now for us is mostly embodied in stories. And stories like Cuthbert, a warrior who follows Jesus to a life of extreme, extreme devotion. So much so that his devotion took him into the sea where he sang those psalms. And I'm not ready to go into Barton Springs, which is a cold springs here near where I'm standing today, but uh, maybe I'll try that someday or some night. And if I do and you see me, please do not tell anyone until I'm dead. Thanks for joining me here on the Dear Padre podcast. If you have any questions for me, please send them to me. Again, uh, this is the Anchor app, so you can listen to this on Anchor or wherever podcasts are found. If you can't find it, uh, contact me and I'll help you. I'm still a small enough operation that I can respond to your emails. That's at runnermonk at gmail.com, runnermonk at gmail.com, and send this to the endurance athletes in your life. Uh, Share it widely, and we'll get the word out that Uh, These old saints aren't so boring after all. So until next time, take care and expect miracles.